Now, don't overthink this, just react, all right? Just react to this. Sweet Caroline. Right, there we go, there we go, right. Now, what? <laughs> now, that's just weird, isn't it? That that has become such a, like, a ubiquitous thing, like, that, that everybody reacts like that. Um, you hear that all over. Um, Sweet Caroline, as you may know, written by Neil Diamond in 1969. Um, now, it was written as a love song to his wife, who was called Maria, but Maria didn't fit the number of... This is what he said. Maria didn't have enough syllables for the song. And so he'd recently seen a magazine cover with JFK's daughter, who was called Caroline, riding a horse, which the image had stuck with him. And so he inserted the name Caroline in there. And so it was a love song to his wife, but changed the name to Caroline. Um, and that was just a song. It was popular when it was released. Um, by all accounts, it was really popular. But then it sort of picked up this second life as like a sports anthem. Now, people who've looked into this, as far as I can tell, the first time it was used um, in a sort of sporting context was in 1996 for an American football team, the Carolina Panthers, which you can sort of get it, Carolina, sweet Caroline. That's where the links end from, from then on. That's the closest you get to a link. Um, then it was picked up in uh, baseball matches. People started singing it. Um, then uh, getting closer to home, uh, it started getting used in um, football matches for the Northern Ireland team. They started playing it and the, the, the fans started uh, taking it on as a bit of an anthem. It then started to get used at uh, cricket matches, darts. And then the first time it was played at Wembley was in Euro 2020. Um, and uh, that's when it really sort of um, accelerated in, in popularity, certainly in this country. It was played after Emma Raducanu won the US Open um, last year. It was named as the official song of the Queen's Jubilee, and they got Rod Stewart to perform it. He wasn't happy about performing it. He, like, in his interview, he was like, oh, that one's not mine, but they asked me to do it. Um, and it was because it had been chosen, the, the, the official song there. Uh, they sang it at my school sports day, um, and most notably recently, um, it was all over the place with the women's uh, European football tournament. Now, read the lyrics as much as you want. It's got nothing to do with sports. It's got nothing to do with like winning a match or anything like that. Um, it's got nothing to do with the Queen's Jubilee at all. Um, but somehow, singing it, like singing along with it, has become a sort of powerful, like. Um, group like crowd dynamic um the, the crowds there to become like an emotional sort of thing or, or like a powerfully sort of moving thing if you see the interview uh with gareth southgate on the the pitch at wembley after england had beaten uh germany and then um also the footage of harry kane going around as a crowd singing it they're both like emotional about it there was something just like powerful about it everybody's singing along to it it's got nothing to do with what's actually happening the lyrics are like just nothing to do with it at all. Um, but pe the people singing that together, it then becomes a powerful thing. And I think that's one example of how singing can really tap into something that's like deep inside us. I've read a number of articles just looking at this about the decline of like singing together in certainly our culture. It's not true in every culture worldwide. Uh, there's still um, cultures where there's a, a lot more singing together. But in certainly in our like Western sort of um, modern culture, there's not a lot of places uh, where the average person will sing um, with other people. Like, obviously, there's some people who enter choirs and, and, and do that sort of thing, but for the average person who's not doing that, it's only really happening at a large scale in churches and in sports stadiums. 
Um, and a lot of these articles talking about the decline of singing together have pointed out loads of benefits of singing together. So one article that I read um, said that there's physical benefits, communal singing calms the heart rate, boosts the immune system and increases pain tolerance. People who frequently sing with others have a higher life expectancy than those who don't. There's one for free that Jane can drop into her uh, choir lessons and that, that she's doing. Mental benefits, communal singing releases feel-good neurochemicals, boosting positive mood, self-esteem, reducing depression and stress. As social benefits, communal singing builds feelings of social cohesion and closeness and has been shown to bond people faster than other activities. Singing in a group offers a visceral sense of belonging, of being part of something bigger than oneself and even of greater meaning and purpose. There's, there's something about singing together. There's all those benefits. It's something that um, it's beyond just accessing with the brain. It, it, it's uh, accessing like a deeper part of it. And also, that's just talking about it in quite a sort of scientific, analytical way. But also throughout history, singing has been an important way of passing on information in cultures where you're passing on things verbally, like before you've got the wide availability of books and, and stuff like that. Um, songs used to uh, tell people the history of like their ancestry and uh, pass on stories and beliefs and, and values in those sort of cultures. And that's what we see in the Bible. There's absolutely loads of singing in the Bible. And what we're going to look at today is, it's not the first song in the Bible, but it's a massive one. It's a really influential um, song that comes up um, in a variety of ways over and over again. Um, and so that's in um, Exodus chapter 15. In verse 1 it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Now, the reason why they're singing this is they've just come through the Red Sea. Um, so just a reminder of what we were looking at um, in chapter 14. Um, there's obviously been this long um, period of time where Moses has, has come to Pharaoh and said, uh, let my people go, like God's people are going to uh, go out to the, to the desert to worship him. Pharaoh says no, and then there's a back and forth where there's plagues, God's uh, giving him chance after chance, um, and Pharaoh still says no, and then eventually he says yes. And so then they set off and they leave, um, and then they get into a situation where they're faced with um, the sea in front of them, and the armies of Pharaoh coming up behind them because Pharaoh's changed his mind. Um, he sends his armies out. They're in this impossible situation. And it looks like, oh, it seems so brilliant. We've come out of slavery, but now it's over before it can even get started. And in a miraculous event, God uh, parts the sea and allows them to go through. And as the uh, chariots and horses of Pharaoh um, try and follow them through, then God uh, brings the sea back together and destroys those armies. And it's then, it's after that's happened, uh, that they sing this song. So if you just look at the, the last couple of verses of uh, chapter 14 to see where we're at, um, it says, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. That's their enemy, like their, their worst enemy, this mighty enemy that they had no chance of defending themselves about. It's been completely wiped out. So verse 31, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And so then they sing this song. That's what it says in then verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sing this song. So they're singing this song in response to this like massive event, this great event. They're celebrating the victory that God, God has won. So it's a song of celebration. But I'm struck 
that it's also a song that allows them to reflect on what's happened because they're interpreting what hap what's happened and what it teaches them about God. It's, they're celebrating what he's done, but they're also reflecting on what that means about who God is and also what it says about the future, as we'll see. And this song um, is being repeated many times um, over the year, throughout the Israelite history. We'll, I'll show you some examples of that later on, uh, bits of this picked up. Uh, to celebrate what God had done in the past, but also to remind and teach future generations, this is what God did. God did. This is how we know what he's like. So um, Amy's read it, but we'll just read it again to get it uh, fresh in our minds, and then we'll have a look at it. So then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like, sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So I think in this song, um, they're singing about who God is, they're singing about what he's done, and they're singing about what he is going to do. The, the, like the, the, the words used to describe what God is like, like come thick and fast, especially in the first couple of verses. They say he's highly exalted. That's to say he's lifted up, he's glorious, he's above everyone and everything else. Christians all over the world today have sung the same thing by singing, Lord, I lift your name on high, or you are exalted, forever exalted on high. They say that God, the Lord, is their strength. Like Pharaoh and his army were the strongest thing that you would have been able to imagine in the world at that time. But God wiped them out, no problem. God is their strength. And Christians around the world today have been singing, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. They said that God is their defense. They were totally unable to defend themselves. They're there with the sea, the army's coming. It's not like, well, we'll give it a go and fight. They would have been completely wiped out. They were unable to defend themselves. But God said, stand and watch that I'm going to fight for you. 
And Christians around the world today have been singing, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. They sing that God is their salvation. He is completely responsible for um, their rescue out of slavery and for their deliverance from their enemies. And we've sang ourselves today, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. They said that he's their father's God. They recognize and he's the God of their ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's made promises in the past, and what he's doing now, he hasn't shows that he hasn't forgotten them. He's bringing them to pass. And Christians today around the world have sang, blessing and honor, glory and power be unto the ancient of days. Recognizing that God, what he said um, years ago, he still hasn't forgotten today. And then they describe God as a warrior. There's not as many songs that uh, talk about God being a warrior, but really that's the primary focus of this song. They're not talking about the plagues or really the freedom from slavery, although that's obviously part of it. They're really specifically talking about God destroying um, their enemies. And maybe as we were reading that song, you thought, oh, yeah, this song's a bit vicious, this. You can't like, imagine Jane striking this one up. Like, this sank like lead to the bottom of the sea. Um, it's a bit more like, as I was saying, really the only main places where communal singing happens a lot is in football crowds and in churches. It's a bit like sort of football chants, like smash the enemy or whatever. Like, I don't know what the football chants are because I don't do them. But like sort of vicious against the team that they don't like. And that's a bit like what this is. God's destroyed their enemy, and that's what they're singing about. God was a warrior on their behalf, and that's what they're singing about here. So they're talking about who are singing about who uh, God is, and that's based on what he has just done. So they're not just picking things out at random. Uh, they're singing that God is this because he has done this. So God's a warrior because he's just thrown Pharaoh's horse and riders into the sea. He's just shattered their chariots. The best of Pharaoh's officers um, have been drowned in the Red Sea. God's hand has shattered the enemy. They're saying there's no one like him. He parted the sea with a blast of his nostrils. The enemy was boasting about what they were going to do, um, but God just destroys them. He was in vivid imagery of God's hands, God's breath, God's nostrils. This is what God's done. This is what he's like. And we know that because of this event that he's done. And in verse 11, they have the, the, the great sort of phrase, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? What they're saying is, look at what he's done. There's no one like him. Look at what he's just done with the sea. And the, the, he shattered the enemies, destroyed them. There's no one like him. This is a song of victory for them. There's just been a, a massive victory there. They weren't part of it, um, but it's been won on their behalf. And they're singing um, in response to that victory. This is like at the football match, where at the end of the match, one to, like, it's coming at the end, it's obvious one team is going to win. One set of fans is not singing. In fact, the other set of fans might be drawing attention to that by singing, you're not singing anymore. While, so one, team's not, one fans, set of fans aren't singing, while the others are singing, oh, we're the greatest team the world's ever seen. Like, it's an exaggerated um, celebration of victory. It's not a matter of life and death. This, is, this was a matter of life and death. And so you can understand how they're just celebrating in victory. They can't believe what God's done. Look at what he's done. There's no one like him. Look at what he's done. Look at, look at what he's done to Pharaoh's army. There's no one like him. 
And then they use what he's done as a basis for celebrating what he will do. So the statements to sing about who God is are based on what he's done. And then the statements about what he's done lead them to say things about what he will do in the future. The things that he has done have increased their faith for what he will do in the future. So verse 13, um, it says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountains of your inheritance. These things that God said he was going to do, because of what he has done, it's given them enormous confidence for what he will do in the future. And so that comes into the song as well. This is what God's like, look at what he's done, and this is what he's going to do. Also say the other nations are going to fear and tremble. They recognize that this land that they, God's said he's going to take them um, to has other people in it. But in verse 14 to 16, they're saying the other nations will fear and tremble. They mention them, Edom, Moab, Moab. Because they think, or they're saying that when these nations see what God's done here, they're going to know they don't stand a chance. So this is like, imagine a match in the FA Cup and a team's won a match and the fans are singing, we start singing, we're going to Wembley. And what they mean is, if we can do this again in the next round, in the round after that, like, then we'll, we'll make it to the, to the final. But there's obviously, with every set of fans singing that, there's a bit of uncertainty because it assumes, can they do it again? They might get injuries. They might come up against better opposition. They might just have bad luck. They might not be able to do it again. Whereas this is sung by the Israelites with absolute certainty. There's nothing that can stand against God. What he's just done is shown there's nothing can stand against him. So it doesn't matter who we've got in the next round. If we've got Edom United coming up next week, it doesn't matter because look at what he's done. They've got nothing to fear in the future because of what he's just done. They're singing about the future with absolute certainty based on what God has done in the past. And so we sing in the same way. We're not singing so much about the Exodus, but we, we sing when he returns with trumpet sound, oh, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness, righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. We're singing with confidence about something that hasn't happened yet based on what we've seen God do in the past. It's not speculation. It's based on what he's done. So the Israelites sing this song. Moses and the Israelites sing this song. They sing about who God is, sing about what he's done, and they sing about what he will do in the future. So how should we put this into practice? I've got three things that I think we should do to try and sort of help this, help us in our Christian life. The first thing is to, to tell the story. That's what they're doing in singing this song. They're telling the story of what God's done. So they're reflecting on and celebrating what God's done. They're not just moving on to the next thing straight away. Now, I have a tendency, I'm just going to move on. Like, God might do something great. He might answer a brilliant prayer. And it's not that I'm, like, trying to ignore it, but I just find myself moving on. I'm not stopping to reflect and celebrate what God's done. And I think here, if we're going to tell these stories, like tell to ourselves, tell to other people, reflect and celebrate on what God, God's done, I think it helps to be specific. They're singing a specific song here about a specific event. The, the horse and the rider have been uh, swallowed up in the sea. They're not just saying God's mighty, they're saying God is mighty because. And so I think being specific as we tell um, these stories helps. And there's a couple of ways that comes out. Firstly, being specific about God's character and actions. So 
it's great to say God's mighty because it's true, but it's, I think, more helpful to say he's mighty because look at what he's doing here with an example of his mighty acts. I think it's great to say God loves us, but we also want to say how we know that. So in 1 John 3, 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So it helps to be specific about God's character and actions, but then also specific about our own story. So I could say to you that when we had the baptisms that um, I was just struck on that week about how God answers prayer. That is true, and that's a good statement to say. Or it could be a bit more specific and say, in the run-up to that, um, Lisa had warned our boys, look, I might cry during Zeke's baptism, so just be prepared. And Timothy especially um, doesn't like the idea of that happening. So he kept on saying, you're not going to cry, you're not going to cry. No, you don't need to cry, you don't need to cry. Anyway, it came to it. And as we were talking afterwards, I said to Lisa, when we'd been having those conversations, I hadn't personally expected to feel that emotional about it. I did feel emotional on the day um, when we were stood there just singing one of the songs. I can't remember what it was because obviously Lisa and I used to attend Headland Baptist Church and I was just struck that we were stood in the same place where we'd stood for years, stood next to each other, singing the same sort of songs, um, unsure whether we'd be able to have kids and just praying desperately that we wouldn't. If you'd told me at that time that I'd be stood there, I don't know how many years later, baptising one of those children, I wouldn't have been able to believe that that was the answer. Now, I could describe that to you as, oh, I was really struck that God answers prayer. Or I could tell you the story. It's harder to tell the story, as you might be able to tell. But I think it has more impact. It's not always appropriate to tell every detail of it, but I think the more specific we can be, um, the more helpful it is to really sort of help us understand what God's like and what he's done. My story is different to yours. Your story is different to the person next to you. And that enriches all of our understanding of who God is and what he's done. Now, we're not likely to be singing a song here next week about specific events in your life, but you can think about them when we're singing those songs. So when we're singing, uh, rejoice when you, cry, when you cry to him, he hears your voice, you can think about the Israelites crying out to him and God hearing their voice. So you can think about times when you've cried out to him and he's heard your voice to enrich the, the words that we're singing. But we're not just talking about singing. I know that's what they were doing here. Like, it's happening with everything we do. We want to tell this story um, as part of everything that we do as a church. So the Sunday gatherings that we have here, I think are great for being specific about God's character and actions. When we're in a big group, we're probably not going to be doing that much about specific stories, like your specific story. Um, there'll be bits and pieces of that. But it's great for being specific about God, who he is, um, and what he's done as revealed in the Bible. That's why we don't just turn up every week and say, great news, God still loves us, see you next week and go. That wouldn't be untrue to do, but it's more helpful for us to say, right, let's turn to a different bit of the Bible and look at specifically how it is that God loves us. And then life groups or other smaller uh, situations where you're talking with smaller groups of people, they're great for being specific about what God's done in your life. What difficulties he's helped you through? Um, what's going on specifically with you? And so I think we want to tell this story. Like the Israelites told these stories. They passed them on to other people through generations, or like to each other, to themselves. And I think we need to do the same. We need to tell the story of who God is and what he's done and being as specific as we can. That's the first thing I think we should do <clears throat> is tell the story. Secondly, though, is repeat this story. I love the fact that we stopped at verse 18, but if we read on verse 19, 
When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. This is just like what we've read before. Um, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. All the women followed her, followed her with tambourines dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. That's the same as uh, the start of Moses' song earlier. I imagine this as they're singing this song and Miriam said, all right, let's sing that one again and straighten it up again. They repeat this song. They repeat the story. Aspects of this song pop up over and over again. I've just pulled a few out from different psalms. So you'll recognize the similar sort of themes. Psalm 136, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the sea, his love endures forever. Or Psalm 78. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. Or Psalm 99. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Psalm 105. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, who he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, his wonders in the land of Ham. Then there's loads of stuff about all the plagues. Um, And then it says, He brought out Israel, laden with silver and gold, and from among their tribes no one faltered. Egypt was glad when they left because the dread of Israel had fallen on them. Psalm 106, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through the desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. This song that we read here in Exodus 15 has been remixed and sung for, for centuries. They've repeated these stories in in what they've said, in what they've sung, over and over again. And what you repeat shapes how you think about things, or shapes who you are. The stories we tell over and over again, or the things that we say over and over again, are the things that shape who we are as people. Like there's certain things that we say all the time at Grace Church, like that have become almost like little catchphrases. So we say that Grace Church exists to share the good news about Jesus. Or we say the good news about Jesus is the best possible news for anybody in any situation. There's a few things like that that we say often. Some of them, like we planned and we sort of worked out before we started the church, and that's why they became part of the language. Some of them are almost accidental and they've just been picked up. And those sort of things that we say over and over again as a church shape the, the, like what the church is like. If we were saying different things, then the church might look um, differently. It's the same in our own lives. It's says certain things, certain stories that we tell or um, certain things that we say over and over again, um, certain instructions you give to children over and over again. Like it shapes who we are. And so we need to tell this story about who God is and like what he's done for you, but also repeat it. We need to repeat the good news about who he is. We need to repeat the good news about what he's going to do. We can't repeat it too often. So we need to tell a story, repeat the story. And then the other thing is sing. Like we, we need to sing about it. One of the main ways that we tell and repeat God's story is by singing, which is obviously what they were doing here. Now, I know that for some people here, 
the singing that we do on a Sunday is the, the best part of the gathering. And you think, oh, I wish we could cut down the other stuff and do more singing. For some people, it's the exact opposite. And you hate the singing. You think, oh, I wish we'd do less songs. Regardless of whether you like it or dislike it, what I want to say to you is singing about who God is and what he's done is important. It's not just something to fill up a bit of time or to do something different um, to, to break it up a bit. Um, one writer, when writing about um, the importance of singing in the church, says, we sing when we're happy and when we're sad. Sometimes we know why we sing, other times it just comes out. Singing changes our moods as well as reflecting them. What we sing has a tremendous influence in how we subsequently think and behave. Songs can enter portals of our being that prose and logic cannot. Singing helps us to, to tell God's story and to repeat that story. And so what we actually sing is also important. And so when we choose the songs that we want to sing at Grace Church, uh, we want to choose songs that um, reflect the God that we see in the Bible. So we want them to be songs that um, tell us biblical truths about uh, who God is. We want them to be understandable. Sometimes songs might not be understandable due to language or imagery that's used. We want, them, we want to be able to understand what we're singing. And we want to be able to actually sing them. Some songs might be great, but not easy for the average person like me and you to sing. And so that's the sort of guidelines we use to try and choose uh, songs at the church. That they tell biblical truths about God, that they're understandable and they're singable. And as I was thinking about this, I just thought, like, we need to just thank, like, the musicians involved. We've got Ian and, and Wayne and um, Jane uh, today, um, other people involved at different times, especially Jane, as she's done so much of it. We, I just want to express thanks on behalf of the church for um, everything they've done um, over the years in uh, leading our music. I also personally want to thank everybody in the church for like joining in and singing. It's an encouragement uh, singing alongside other people. I was thinking about it yesterday afternoon as some of us were at uh, Lynn's wedding and just there was a lot of people singing there and we're into it. Now I've been to a lot of weddings where there's nobody singing there and people are like mumbling. Um, and it's just a real encouragement when uh, people are singing. Now, I will say, obviously, you may be somebody sat here who doesn't like, want to join in with the singing. That's also fine. There's no pressure at all to join in. But also, it's easy to join in if you want. Um, we've got a wide range of abilities, <laughs> uh, singing abilities in here. There's frequent mistakes made. It's not a performance. It's a sing-along. So if you want to join in, nobody's judging, oh, how was that person singing or whatever. Um, it's totally up to you. But I would encourage you to sing um, because I think it's, it's beneficial. As well as singing here, though, I would encourage you to um, incorporate singing with like yourself at home, with children by yourself or whatever. It's a way that you can really do these things that we've talked about here um, because sometimes I think, obviously, I didn't write this down. I should have thought clearly about what I want to say. I'll come back to it in a second. Um, it's, it's a way of really helping us to engage with um, the truths that we read in the Bible in a different way to, to just reading them and discussing them. So one writer that I read said that he, was, he, he says that uh, singing together as Christians or singing yourself helps you with three things. Remembering God's word, responding to God's grace, reflecting God's glory. So you can remember things easier when you sing them. So I, there's no benefit to this at all, so I'm not showing off. But I know the order of all the judges in the book of Judges. 
And the only reason I know them all in order is because it's on a kid's Bible CD where they made it into a daft song. And the first time we played that in the car when the boys were little mean, they said, like, why have they made this into a song? And now we can just strike it up and say, there was Othniel and Ehud, Shamgar and Deborah. I could do them in order just because I know the daft song. It's not going to help me in my life, but there you go. That's what happened. You can remember things more easily um, through songs. It helps us to remember uh, God's word. But it also helps us to respond to God's grace. Going back to that other quote where it says, it's touching a part of us that like logic doesn't break through into. We can respond to God um, in a different way through song. And it also helps us to reflect God's glory as like a, a teaching element um, to other people um, around you. Now, we don't sing... Hang on, I've just realised I went out of sequence there because I was talking about uh, singing at home as well. Um, yeah, I was just going to say I'd encourage you to do it yourself because it, it's beneficial for those reasons I've just been talking about. If you're somebody who thinks, actually, I don't know what I would listen to in terms of Christian music, then um, ask around. There's, there'll be other people who will recommend stuff um, that you'd, um, I'm sure, would like to, to listen to and, and sing along with. Now, we don't sing many songs that I can think of specifically about the Exodus, like Moses um, bringing the people out of slavery. Why is that? Because we sing about a better exodus. So I was just thinking um, this week, I was sorry, reading through uh, Luke's gospel, I was reading about uh, the event that's known as Jesus' transfiguration. And so what that is, is at some point during his ministry, Jesus goes up to this mountain and he takes Peter and James and John with him. And then Jesus goes off a bit and then there's like a weird event, and it seems like there's bright light and that, and they see Jesus talking with people who they are, who are identified as Moses and Elijah. And it says in the Bible that he was talking with them about his, and then different translations will say different things there. So they might say talking about his departure, or talking about his death, or uh, various things there. But the actual word used is exodus. It says Moses and Elijah turn up, and Jesus is talking with them about his exodus. Jesus often took Old Testament things and said they're about what he's doing. He took all the shepherd imagery and said, that's about me, I'm the good shepherd. And it's the same with this. Jesus saw his mission as an exodus. The people in slavery to sin, not enjoying the life with him that they were designed for. Totally powerless to help themselves. Rescued by sheltering under the blood of his sacrifice. The people are going to be freed from slavery, empowered for life. They're enemies of Satan, sin and death completely shattered. And then he's going to be leading his people into a promised land where they're going to enjoy his presence forever. I just like to imagine that there. Moses and Elijah turned up to talk to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, oh, Moses, you remember your exodus? It's like that, but better. It's like that, but bigger and better. And it's going to last forever. The songs that we sing then are about that exodus. We sing about the bigger exodus. So we don't really sing about the horse and the, the rider. We sing about the cross and the, the tomb. That's the exodus that we look back on. That's the exodus that teaches us what God is like. That's the exodus that gives us great hope for what he's going to do in the future. In Revelation uh, chapter 15, um, you've got uh, the disciple John there with a vision of the future. And he sees God's people gathered around in his presence at a great feast. And he says this, they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb, that's Jesus. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. 
All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's a song like this one. I just love that vision of like vision of the future, God's people with him for eternity. Moses is there, everybody else is there, they're still singing the same sort of songs. How marvellous are God's deeds? Like, who is there like him? There's no one like him. His righteous acts have revealed who he is. So I'm just going to finish by uh, reading uh, that song again, and then we are going to sing. Um, the song, obviously, uh, they're singing about the horse and the rider. We're going to sing about the, the cross and the empty tomb. So uh, let's read this as a, a sort of closing prayer, and then we'll uh, sing together. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever.